0: Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Table Work, How New Plays Get Made. My name is Amber Bradshaw, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. On this podcast, I explore new play dramaturgy with artists working in the field, and there are certain companies that I really do have an artistic crush on. And one of those companies is Vernal & Sear Theater. Vernal & Sear was founded in Atlanta, Georgia in 2016 by five company members, Sawyer Estes, Aaron Boswell, Lindsay Sharpless, Erin O'Connor, and Catherine Barnes. When you check out their website, they say that their work finds its place in the theater between the sacred and the profane. They say that they are drawn to work that is classical and new. Uh, that straddles the line between Vernal and seer, fertility and barrenness, sacred and profane, happiness and grief. They ask their audiences to plunge headfirst into the void between such polarities and then reorient themselves to the difficult reality of being. So in addition to the productions that Vernal and Seer does that are often new work, like their last production, Hurricane Season, or potentially, uh, it might be an adaptation, like the upcoming Glass Essay by Ann Carson or Ubu Wa by Alfred Jerry. And then, of course, they do shows that are just powerfully conceived um, and directed and designed, like 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane and Lear by Jean Lee. Their work is also heavily movement-based, and they also teach it, and you can train with them which is really exciting, and I look forward to doing so myself. So no matter what Vernal and Cyr is up to, they are explorers on a journey that I am really excited to go on with them. You know, I'm a big fan of experimental theater, and Vernal and Sierra checks a lot of my boxes for me as an artist and an audience member. So I was really excited to sit down with a few of the team and have some conversations about their process and their work. This first set of interviews, part one and two, is with Sawyer Estes. The final part three will be with Aaron Boswell. I hope you will enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. I want to give a short trigger warning. We will be discussing 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane. Please be aware this play has intense content around mental illness. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as Managing Artistic Director. For more about WTP and me, check out WorkingTitlePlaywrights.com. And now, part one on Vernal and Seer Theatre with playwright, director, and dramaturg Sawyer Estes.
1: We're here as actors and as artists to bear witness to a thing that is important, to serve a theatrical function in a democratic society that's losing it, and we don't need you to applaud us for it, and we're not going to ask. Now... And that now, if an audience member stands up because it swells in them that that guy gotta give this a point. Like, we're gonna cry. And we're gonna be so happy, and it's it will interrupt whatever meditation is there. But like, it'll come from a true interruption of joy, mm-hmm. and that's like what we're asking for and not asking.
0: So I am really excited to introduce my guest today, Sawyer Estes from Vernal and Seer, And I want to give him a chance to introduce himself.
1: Hi, I'm Sawyer. I'm from the panhandle of Texas, a small town of 7,000 people. Went to school at the University of Houston, studied playwriting and dramaturgy. I chose to go to the University of Houston so that I might study under Edward Albee, who I became infatuated with in high school and became my mentor for several years. I moved to New York City, made a terrific failure of a play, hated New York, moved to Atlanta, having never visited Atlanta, formed Bernal and Sear Theater a year after living here, and have since made more our 10th production as a company. And It's been kind of my artistic creative life for the past seven years. I've never Made a show outside of the company or worked outside of the company. It has just kind of been an incubator for our work.
0: Awesome, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and we met in 2018. I saw a Vernal and Sears' production of 448 by Sarah Kane, and I was uh, blown away. So I, I must have reached out or something like that. But when Working Title Playwrights provided an equity workshop to the entire theater community that year. Um, you offered to volunteer so that you could attend. And that's when I met you personally, right? Right. So that was our first time meeting. And I was so impressed with that show. It was a beautiful production. And for a play that many would say is probably really confusing, (laughs) um, maybe even unreadable, it was very clear. I mean, I was amazed at how clear the story was told. I'd love to... Talk a little bit about that, since we're talking about I it. I talk about
1: Sarah so Kane 448 psychosis so all day. I yeah, yeah.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit about your um, choices that you made for that show. Some of the things I remember that were super specific was you had four actors playing yeah. the role rather yeah. than one, yeah. right? Yeah, four women. And why did you decide on four rather than one?
1: I like balance. I think most of our work I'm looking for a kind of balance and I, I was struck by the number four as a kind of, you know, we well, now we're about to do another play with a square again. Um, <laughs> but then I'm looking, it just felt like um, a kind of balance that I wanted. I wanted it from all female identifying actors. I felt that that was important and it felt right. I work from a sense of feeling and a sense of, I like to, keep some things very conscious. I'm very mm-hmm. detailed oriented, but then I reach a point and then I like to remain unconscious of the thing. Mm-hmm. And it was something that very early felt right. I felt like it needed to be four women and I felt like they all needed to play every single role and know every single line. And then that the manner in which the play unfolded and how each line was said needed to be determined in real time in the space. Um, through a sense of unknowing. And I kept saying very early on that we needed, the content of the play is about mental illness, chronic depression, and I felt like the form of the play is that content in a a perfect way. Mm. And I felt like our production of it needed to also match that form. Mm. And so I've told them that what we're going to do is you're gonna learn every single line every single moment from every possible angle so that then when you're in the moment in the space and some other actor, one of the other actors comes up to you and says a line, you're not going to know which one it is. And you're not going to know if you are the victim, the perpetrator or the bystander at any moment so that it would feel like the self turning on itself and not knowing which direction it was coming from. And so I felt like it was really important for the actors in that piece, to have that kind of sense of danger and unknowing. And uh, if you talk to them about the experience of being in that play, it was anxiety inducing and often quite terrifying right. because they were floating um, right. just in a kind of unknowing, even though it was very rigorously rehearsed, um, a kind of, uh, I don't know. Good word for it, but a kind of fascist precision yes. <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the way we went about it. Right. Um, that every, we rehearsed every scene from every possible angle. Like yeah. we, it'd be, you play this role, you play this role, now switch roles, you do this, now you do this, and then um, switch roles again, now bring in the other performer, and we rehearsed it over six months that way. Um, yeah. So that in the space, it could happen any possible permutation of it but we will have, we will have worked it and we will know what to do when that happens
0: and so if i remember correctly all of the actors knew all of the lines and each night one person would just decide to start is that correct that like, was how determined did completely by yeah. chance every, yeah. every
1: scene had a different kind of logic oh, <laughs> it was a yeah, point like, for
0: yeah because these were choices that you made yeah. as a director yeah. right so i'm super interested like To have four of them, they all know everything. They can all play the role. There's something about that, that in working on a play like 448, which is, if you haven't read it, is pretty rough. You know, it's it's a tough play to read, to experience. If you know anything about Sarah King, it's very authentic and very true to her experience. So like, it's a lot. But one of the things that I think the four people on stage did was allow the actors to not be alone yeah. in that terrifying space. You know, they like they were together. Other, they only yeah. had
1: each other and it was yeah. basically our core company members. Aaron O'Connor Katherine Barnes Aaron Boswell and then Madeline Wall who's been with us from day one she's basically the extended company um, she's done four, four or five shows with us and her parents are on the board now. <laughs> um, Love she's, it. she's family. And, um, it was them four and they only, yeah, they only had each other. I mean, they would hold on to each other and be like, don't make us do this play again before we started. And then at the end they would weep in each other's arms. Um, but in, in terms of how, you know, the opening, everything, every scene had its own kind of logic. So we talked a little about, I have a back, basketball background. And so we would, I had, we, the actors and I would watch, um, Motion offenses from certain basketball teams. No, fantastic. <laughs> and I would walk. Hey,
0: out. here's some basketball dramaturgy for you. <laughs> Love it. And
1: we would go. I'd say, look, you see if Kyrie Irving's defender goes under that screen, you see how then he goes up on top of it, and mm-hmm. and then how that how the other actor, or the other player, then creates space in the opposite direction. And so we would talk about balance in that way and how so if this actor crosses down you're crossing up they go low you go high and we would determine so basically a scene would end and if that actor was high um, based on the natural instinctual movements of the previous scene if that if one actor ended high and one ended low then we knew that that one that was high was then the doctor in the next scene and the one that was low was the patient in that scene got it and and or we'd have it we'd have the set divided by zones so let's say it's four zones if you ended in zone a then you were playing this these lines of the next scene If you ended in zone b but it was totally free how one might get there Mm. and you just Mm -hmm. know someone has to be in every zone and get there in a way that's honest not in a way that's oh someone has to be in zone c Yes. And so when the play opened, we had two pinpoint spots of light on far ends of the stage, stage left and stage right. And we had to have one actor in one pool and one actor in the other pool, just a pinpoint of light. But I remember opening night after working on the play for seven months, not knowing which actors were going to be there and having this moment of, oh, my God, like I've kind of worked through this play in such minute detail. And yet I don't know who's going to play my opening scene. And, uh, and kind of in that moment, just being like, this is, I'm also, it was incredible because I I felt like I had control and then ultimately relinquished all control to them in a way that like, I now try to emulate in in a lot of of the work we do. And, um, and I thought in a way that was beautiful.
0: That's really cool. Thank you for explaining that. That's really neat. I think it's pretty clear that there's a lot of strategy and technique and training to everything you'll do. You know, so it doesn't surprise me, but I really like that you're using basketball. It's (laughs) It's really fantastic. One crazy thing, one last
1: note on 448 is the original production of it. And of course we can, not of course, but we can see, I conceived of this idea um, without knowing this. And then as we started to work, I started to look further into the original production. Mm-hmm. And they actually rehearsed the play in the same way. So it was four actors, uh, two male identifying two female, and they had this kind of fluidity in, in the way that they worked on it. The only mm-hmm. difference was that when they came to the first performance, they fixed it where we never, we fixed, never anything. fixed
0: it each night it was always a different person. Yeah. Which is like one of the things I always mention about that show. Um, because I think that's a really brave and powerful choice. And there's something about giving the actor the agency to choose. Especially when you're working on something as hard as 448. Um, because I would imagine the care around that. A lot of potential for just breakdowns and, and a lot of inner stuff going on. And finding... Agency for them; they get to decide. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready tonight.
1: Yeah, you one of know? my favorite stories. Is I love that this moment. Um, I think it's probably my favorite text ever. It's just such violent text. I don't even want to say it. Right. Um, but it's this. It talks about uh, essentially um, about genocide and um, just mass murder and and um, and but also about like showing up to the party and everyone leaving so something is. <laughs> Potentially, um, yeah. But anyway, the, in this moment, I just think it's this just whale of a, of a speech. I mean, just like put your insides onto the stage mm-hmm. in the most brutal way. And, I, and for me, when I'm working on it, I said, God, for an actor to, to get to that, to that moment, to, say, to bear witness to those lines, essentially to bear witness to an entire 20th century of catastrophe and violence. And define that within themselves, to speak those, that oh, text, um, I thought, would take um, a huge movement of, of pathos. And and so what we would do, we had this moment, the, right before that moment, it's called Rhythm of Madness. And it was just a mad dash. Everyone was just running on a grid. And yeah. and the first person, we called it splatting out. And so one person would splat out, second person, third person, and the fourth person, the last person standing had to turn on a dime and come down to the center or come down stage and deliver that speech. And so on the opening night, oh, this is one of my favorite stories of that play. So on the opening night, that rhythm of madness <laughs> lasted about two seconds because everyone was flattened out because no one wanted to say the speech because there was just the experience of being up. There was so much anxiety. It wasn't going well. Everyone was just like, not me, not me, not me, not me then there was another, so then the fourth person standing on that night, um, just had the, uh, had to just kind of just unearth that. And that person, I remember just stood up the X so of the rhythm madness was quick. And then you could just see them with their back to the audience, probably for what seemed like, I mean, it seemed like two minutes, just trying to get themselves in a position to bear witness to that text oh. before they had to come down. Cause they didn't have it. No one had it that night but someone had to do it. And so I watched the actor do that. But then later in the run, from like closing night, the girls ran each other to death. (laughs) (laughs) They figure
0: out maybe if they just kept going, they could find the courage to do it.
1: Well, no one, everyone wanted to bear witness to that line. Everyone Mm. had it and everyone wanted to say it. Mm. And so no one was, no one was not hitting. And it became a, of course, Boz won, because <laughs> my life will always win that. <laughs>
0: Boz um, being Aaron Boswell. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, but they ran, I mean, the Rhythm Madness took so long. And me as the director, I'm up there kind of cringing because I'm like, this moment is take, we're just watching people run their heads off, and it's way too long. But then another part of me just thought it was so amazing to see four people that wanted to stand in for the atrocities of the 20th century and
0: felt (laughs) like like
1: they had to give it and i was like this is
0: incredible
1: um, that we had that opportunity and have and found a form to do it
0: yeah yeah it was a really really cool show and um for me i actually chose to do a sarah kane monologue in college um, from 448, mm. and so um, was it. Um, and I, it was the, the video, uh, I cannot find you. Yep, exactly. And uh, and so when I saw that there was like a production happening, I was like, oh my god, I'm never going to get this chance again. You know what I mean? Um, and I was super excited because that place scared the crap out of me, but I was like, wow, I want to see this produced. Because there's like really no stage directions, right? Like it's there's, there's no stage directions. No it looks like kind of like poetry, but like not, it's, it's not, there's very little guidance, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of like, what is this supposed to be? Yeah, right. And it's handy. just like her by herself. Right. So yeah. it's like, how the heck do you make that into form? And like, so I was just so impressed. And then to hear about the ways you did it, it like makes a lot of sense. Um, and did you learn, um, did you come up with those sort of strategies when you were working with Albie? Was that something that you, or was it something that you developed elsewhere?
1: No, Albie is more traditional than I think that I've grown interested in. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) but we, you know, uh, I, but I think that, that it's, it's the closest kind of thing that I could say that I've, that I've, would be Charlie Kaufman's work, his film work. Uh, if you've seen, I'm thinking of ending things. I think if there's a certain form that my plays work in, the plays that I'm interested in that move like Kaufman's, I'm thinking of ending things. Which I'm thinking of ending things is really just a lesser, lesser version of Synecdoche, New York. Um, when there's this sense in Synecdoche, New York, where um, everyone is everyone. Um, he's, he says, "So you're," she says, "So you're Caden." You are also the house cleaner with her red raw hands. You are your daughter. Um, You're the construction worker. You're the president. And there is a sense of I'm drawn to this kind of way of working and like the way of the form, which my plays more and more take is a kind of um, specificity, particularly early on in the production um, and a kind of uh, contained self. A uh, self that's
0: trapped, and then as the piece goes on, um, a kind
1: of expansion of that into a kind of understanding of a of a unification, which often comes about through intense violence or trauma in the productions, and and through like pain, and so, four forty eight made that very clear. And then I see it in Kaufman, and I don't—I don't particularly see it in Albie because it's more traditional. Albie has a very strong sense of character. I always say I don't believe in character. Um, oh, really? I, yeah. <laughs> Tell <Talk> me about that. <laughs> I, I just don't—I think character's so fluid. And if I were to sit here and define who I am in some rigid, um, I'm, I, I even hate being recorded because I'm like, what if I say something I'm not going to agree with tomorrow?
0: <laughs> and, oh, we are contradictory, aren't we? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And and I and I think um, where Albie would have these walks and he'd be talking to these characters, he would he'd say he'd he'd take Jerry and Peter from Zoo Story on the beach and walk and have a conversation with Peter for wow. hours or yeah. Jerry for hours. Sure. And I just don't operate in that way. I don't. I I'm, I'm like you're just talking to yourself. <laughs> and and I. I think I go into every play with that kind of disillusionment of uh, I know that I'm talking to myself, or if I'm staging Ann Carson, I'm, I'm not talking to Ann Carson's characters, I'm talking to Ann Carson. We're playing Ann Carson. When we're doing 448 Psychosis, we are, this is Sarah Kane. And these other things are just these abstract, ephemeral abstractions that are really, I think, an illusion. And, and then we're bringing ourselves into that as well and then rounding it out into a kind of larger self. Um, yeah. So I, I really don't like to, I get, when actors will talk to me about character, I just struggle. And I'm just like, well, how would you do it? And then just do it sitting <laughs> or do it standing. And, um, and then if it doesn't work, or because of some notion of character that we can't really define, um, then just put a different quality on it. Um,
0: it reminds me of <clears throat> playwrights who are like, "Well, all the characters are me." Yeah, I mean, it's basically what you're saying totally. is that the play is 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 about it's com- com- a conversation for you with whoever's created it. So if you've created it, it's your conversation, yeah. right? But if you're directing it, then it's your conversation with Ann Carson, for yeah. example. Which is fantastic and so true. And I really agree with. And I think from a new play dramaturgy perspective, it's really important. Um, And actually, like, I feel like supports a lot of what I say about focusing on the playwright rather than the story itself. Yeah. And that, like, the key is the relationship with the playwright themselves in the process part when they're creating the piece. Right? Because every character in the play is them.
1: Yeah. You know, and they can say it's not super but it's, meta, but it's not it's, true. Who was it coming they from? They could them? say that, but it's, yeah. I mean, I mean in any way in any way that it would be not them. I mean, it's coming from you and in any way that if you are you, if we believe in that, then that's the, the extent that you get, you know. Or, or you're not you and you're part of everything you've ever read or seen, or and then that goes into where my boys like to go. If we get to that, that yeah, you are not you. You are not this contained thing, you are an accumulation of everything you've read and everything you've experienced, which is also an extension of everyone else. Right, and We are all these kind of self-contained things, like we contain the multitudes of all ex- existence and all experience, and I think it's important for me in place to, if I'm doing anything consciously that has to do with some kind of um, way of going about it, it would be to make that clear.
0: I just want to congratulate you on getting your 501c3 status for Ronald and Sierra. It's really, really exciting. For those who don't know, it's, it's quite a lengthy process and it is a huge thing to celebrate. So congratulations. Um, scary.
1: We're like married.
0: You're like official now. Yeah, yeah. Taxes stuff. I know, right? <laughs> it's amazing. After seven years. So you said 2016 um, yeah. and survived the pandemic. Yeah, right. Which is incredible. Congratulations yeah. on that too. And the most
1: political thing, obviously, survived the Trump presidency, which oh. we didn't expect. Yeah, <laughs> which wow. Which was a part of our initial. I know story because so we yeah we did sincerity forever thinking it would be this a uh, whoo dodged a bullet and then we're in rehearsal and he gets elected and we go oh it's not a whoo we dodged a bullet play it's a oh this is this is oh, this the reality is real. wow
0: play. wow that was a big shift. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you um, and you, you founded Vernal and Sear with four other company members, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, Aaron O'Connor, Catherine Barnes, Aaron Boswell, and Lindsay Sharpless.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And you and Aaron are newly married. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm newly married. Congratulations. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. <laughs> five weeks ago, five or six weeks ago. We've been together eight years.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. A lot Um, of place. Yeah, I know, (laughs) I know. A lot of plays. Um, and how would you describe what each company member brings to Vernal and Sear? So, you know, all five of you, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear. And um, also I'm excited that I will be interviewing Aaron Boswell, and so we'll have a whole nother perspective on Vernal and Sierra from her which I'm excited about so please share tell us a little bit about the company members
1: we've we you know we continue to define how we each kind of fit into what the thing is and it's still on every day is a process of learning we don't have really any fixed titles still at this point um uh, I might like say that I'm the artistic director and they might be like no we disagree <laughs> still up for discussion and, and um but we you know creatively we are still kind of all in the self kind of process of what we do best to and how we might fit in and how we serve the company and so you know uh start with me i i would say I do probably most of the reading and conceiving and like kind of the preemptive. I'm constantly thinking about what I might be interested or do next. And I'm constantly interested in a more like grand scheme of, um, of formally, what am I, what are we interested in formally next? And, and I often bring that to the team, um, whether that's, you know, a a play as as a play or if it's an adaptation of a film or something that I have written, um, then I, you know, it's innumerable ways that, that might, we might go about that, but it's typically like, this is a thing that I think we're And then they'll either be, I'm interested in this too, or I'm not interested in this. And then we'll have tension or we'll be like, whoa, we're both interested. And then we'll be off to the races. Um, and then I direct in the room, dramaturgical voice often in the room, and working with actors in the moment, Erin um, Boswell. She's um, she's the one that kind of gets well, one of many, but she I lean on her of making the things happen. She's an incredible crafts in terms of acting, vocal coaching, movement direction, choreography. She you know, um, it's sort of an like intimacy direction. Um, So we look to her often, I look to her often for um, the development of tools in the room. I am not a teacher. I don't like teaching. I want to work with artists that are there and ready to work. And I get frustrated if I have to teach too much. I do teach, but only out of necessity to do the work that we want to do. (laughs) Whereas Erin loves teaching. She just loves Let's find new tools. Let's develop. And she. And so she te-
0: does. She primarily teach the classes that you all. Or- she,
1: her, and Erin O'Connor do. I don't even attend classes
0: anymore. Got it. Um, Got part it. of that
1: through, well, you know, we were briefly talking about about like pay to play or the sense of like, you know, so you know, we're like auditioning in class. We don't want this like feeling of auditioning in class. So because I do a lot of the directing and stuff in the season, I felt like cool. we felt like it was good to. It's always me.
0: important to acknowledge your power in the room. Yeah, remove yeah. Me from it,
1: and just let them have free space to build tools and to like come into their craft, and okay. then we'll bring it into the room, and then we'll make something. Sure. Um, so that's Erin O'Connor. Erin O'Connor, kind of same token, movement director, choreographer. She's um, one of my favorite mover dancers as an actor, um, and she's a director. She co-directs often with me. She directs. Um, she directed Lear most recently with Boswell. I didn't even tell Boswell also a director. She just does everything. Too. Um, and she teaches. And then Kat Barnes is, she's a kind of Swiss army knife in terms of <laughs> what we need when we need it. Um, community, she's very involved in the community, film community and theater community. Um, she's an incredible actor. We lean on her most for acting and what she brings to the stage. Um, Then she's also, you know, usually handling props, purchasing, budgets, she does all of that. She's just kind of Swiss army knife. Um, Oh, this thing's blown up, cat! come solve it because we're all freaking out and she does that. (laughs) And Lindsay Sharpless, um, she's been our lighting designer for every show. She's kind of the primary design kind of mind on that end. And she's an actor. And, yeah, she just kind of makes our shows look phenomenal. And she's the most underrated, undervalued, underutilized, like, lighting designer in the city, I think. And she's also an incredible actor. And she's in the next piece.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah. And so how do you break up the unfun things, the managerial, the administrative, the social media? How does that work? Social media
1: is there in a She's so great at it, and, love, and I think enjoys it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, she's y'all follow
0: and Sierra on IG. They've got a they've got a great IG page. Mm-hmm.
1: She's social media marketing. Aaron Boswell will be the head of education. Cat mm-hmm. um, would be more about community development and budget. Um, but you know, honestly, and then I would be more yeah, just creative overseeing a lot. Of, everything. Um, I'm the president of the board now.
0: <laughs> Cause they were like,
1: we don't know what y'all want and we don't want to dictate to y'all. We're just
0: here to support. So you lead it for now. And, um, and so that, well, that's a uni- unique board structure. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I actually am a board member, uh, since last year. So I'm a voting member now of my board, but I wasn't before then. Yeah. I mean, ideally, I think, like, will get me off of it. Weird, but it's weird. It would be weird for the AD to not be a voting member of the board, right? I mean, to me, that doesn't make much sense. You know, obviously, I don't get to vote on my salary and things like that, but but why not? Because, I mean, really, the board is taking cues from the AD anyways, so Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they be on the board, you know?
1: we just have a board that's, like, wants to... I mean, you know, they know that they wouldn't have been asked to be on the board if they were going to try to dictate any kind of programming or anything like that, mm-hmm. because yeah, we'd, we'd say we're we say we don't need money then. <laughs> but, so they're on there, um, basically just how to support us as a, as people with a little bit more means or access to means sure. to continue to do, you know, what we've done mm-hmm. and, and to support. And so... They are really a board right now of people that just want to support in that way and not in any way um, try to dictate the vision or creativity or this or that. And um, mm-hmm. so we've established it pretty clear um, that we'd rather do it for free than make those kinds of concessions.
0: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
1: we'll continue to do that.
0: Yeah. And speaking of board, and I'd love to talk a little bit about your audience, Mm -hmm. Um, because um, you have a loyal audience. Um, You do well with your shows. Uh, You have people come back a lot. You retain a lot of audience members. And if, um, if you've ever been to a Vernal and Sears show, and you're a theater artist, you will not see a lot of the community at the shows. And you'll do all of your shows at the Windmill Arts Center in East Point, right? Yeah. Which shout out to Sam Ross and yeah. the team at the Windmill Arts Center for all that they do for the artists that work in the arts center. It's a beautiful space if you have never been. But tell me a little bit about how you built your audience, and you know how you sort of developed that over these over these years.
1: The main function in the way you know that we built the community from the beginning, was I've worked in specialty coffee for about eight, nine years. (laughs) And my wife has been a barista in the same cafe with me. And the cafe, it's Chrome Yellow on Edgewood. And we attract a number of artists and a number of kind of creative-minded people um, from all walks of life and different levels of economic status. And it's just been a very kind of Big hub. And so, you know, over being there for seven years and serving people coffee, and then once a year or twice a year, I also hand them um, uh, a poster, a flyer, and I say, hey, uh, you didn't know this about me, but I make theater and we've been friends, and I serve you coffee every day for the past seven years, and um, come to this play. I think you'll like this one. And over time, they've come, and then the work has been. Good, I think. And they've been like, Oh wow, I didn't I thought you were just in coffee. I didn't realize that you did this this thing, and I didn't realize you did it like this. I thought it was gonna be some kind of, you know, bad community theater kind of that they'll say. And and I didn't realize it was like y'all are kind of professionals. <laughs> I've had people say that. And I'm like, Yeah, we're like hobbyists, but um, you know, if we like to think the qualities there. And over time, it's just kind of built, and we've retained a number of them, and we've had a few people come in from the theater community, too, and we've had support through the theater community. Joe Sykes being in The Exterminating Angel was a huge boost.
0: Oh, I bet. <laughs> I bet. To that
1: end, because it, and I felt like it was a big shift in the company getting more attention from the theater community because it was suddenly...
0: There were so many people in that show. Yeah. Yeah. But
1: for Joe, but I think for Joe is he's worked at Actors Express. He's worked all over. And suddenly it was like, Oh, it's not just these weirdos. These is someone that works, <laughs> that works. This is an audience that works. It gets good reviews. Like this is an actor that works, gets good reviews. And now he's working with it, which for me to say, just, uh, just to thank him, it was a huge risk that he took, honestly, to work as long as he did on the show. Um, with the amount of money that was given to him for the show, um, having the success that he's having in the city was well, one really of the cool. things
0: I find um, sometimes the more professional artists are um, absolutely in, in need of some like really authentic art. And sometimes they don't get to do stuff like that anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, I mean, I, I'm always so grateful because I feel like we have a lot of really well-known artists that love to read in our readings, you know, for working title and, you know, we're not, we're not big potatoes. It's like stage readings. It's not, this is not big celebrity stuff. Right. (laughs) But I have hired people that, um, you know, could be considered Atlanta celebrities to read stage directions. And they were thrilled, Yeah, you know, because it was like the playwright was one of their friends and they were just so excited to be in the room. And, um, I think that's there's a lot to be said for um professionals and people often have asked me over the years, how did you hire how'd you get that person? How'd you hire that person? And I said, Well, I asked. Yeah. Because a lot of people don't even think that they'd be interested. Yeah. And they're just wrong. They're wrong. People are interested. And they do occasionally want to do stuff. It's like really off the path. And they'll 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 clear their schedule if it's if it's um fulfilling. Yeah. Totally. Right? Yeah. Thank think, goodness.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, you say this like out of like kind of both sides of your mouth because in some ways she could be like, oh, theaters, you can exploit actors or labor, you know, because like they, if you make work that they care about. So you don't want to say that too strongly, but actors want to make work they care about. Like, yeah. and that is, that fills, that fuels them creatively. And a lot of our work is from actors that don't get hired anywhere else in the city. And if you've seen the work, you're like, these actors are really good. What the hell is going on? And it's either not they're not getting interest from other theaters for X, Y, Z reasons, or they're not interested in the work the other theaters are doing, or, you know, one of those things are happening. And, and, you know, it's just there is this kind of, from the work that we've done that has resonated with a number of people um, where actors feel like very alive doing it
0: mm-hmm. and
1: feel like oh my god this is why i got into this thing
0: mm-hmm. this
1: is why i became an actor and a lot of them are film and tv actors you know that were trained in theater mm-hmm. now they're trying to make like a career and so they're you know with that medium there's you know higher higher ceiling and they're just like they're just auditioning every day on you know on you know mm-hmm. with little one-liners and they forget the kind of spiritual kind of thing
0: that got them into this heck yeah and heck yeah I like, have so many actors who are like just back and forth from theater to film because they can't let go of theater you know they're like so other stuff that's really like there's not a lot of love there's not a lot of heart there can be but yeah. you know so it's I always say like in the theater world we must provide that space we must. What else do we have? We can't offer a lot of money. No. We can't offer huge audiences, millions of people watching something someone's been in. But we can offer an experience that um, hopefully has some creative currency, right? Yeah, I mean, like, and what's I, the value of that experience?
1: Yeah, that goes, and that's the actors, and it's also that, and then that that notion or that that drive also extends to our audiences, and mm. people are like, "Why aren't audiences coming? Why aren't audiences coming?" or whatever, and it's like. You're trying to give them some less funded version of what Netflix does well, and it's like, what are you? You know, it takes a lot to go to theater. I mean, I'm so on it It's does. You know, it's, a, it's your whole night. You it's your gotta whole park. night. You got to plan it. <laughs> yeah, it's, you got to park. You got to fight through traffic. You got your night's gone. And then it's like, man, I got some like cheap entertainment version of what I can get on Netflix that has millions of dollars behind it, and incredible actors you know right. celebrity and then so you think about i mean for me i'm like that's it's not even about is the content happy or is the content sad or is the all these other things we kind of is it too smart is it too dumb like i don't think that that's really it's a it's something deeper than that and it's like what is it it's a for me it's like a spiritual thing it's like are you doing these like you know, go 500 BC Athens while they were going to the theater. Is that still true of our theaters? Are we doing that? Are we connecting with something higher or more inner with the way we make work? And yeah. and I think that that's, for me, I'm like, that's why people, you know, they come, they've come to our shows because I've given them coffee over seven years and they keep coming because I think in some way we are, the way we go about it um, returning for me I hope returning theater to a kind of spiritual place
0: mm-hmm. and, and I don't even know what that is it totally connects to um, some a lot of what Matt Torney said in, in his episode about Greek theater and the theater is a place where we come to learn about ourselves to connect with each other to have like a literal metaphysical experience mm-hmm. and if we're not offering that what are we offering audiences? Exactly. It's like, it's just, and I, I completely agree. I'm like, it needs to be an experience, a full blown experience, you yeah. know? And um, so I, I agree that it's, I think there's a lot of missing the boat. And I think a lot of audiences that aren't returning, aren't returning because they think that's what there is. Mm-hmm. And there aren't options. And the,
1: the, the, the decorum, the, ritual it's just it's it's worn out for them it's like what am I doing I'm not coming like the meet and greet it's too hard life's too hard to for us to still have the satisfaction of like the cultural capital it's like oh like the shaking of hands or I'm seeing a play it's just not it's not worth it like the world's burning it does not
0: have the same resonance anymore absolutely
1: so then it's like what are we replacing that with what are we gonna like what's the thing that they're getting out of coming
0: Absolutely. And, um, and what yeah, are y'all hoping that is?
1: Um, for me, I mean, it's so hard. I know what I'm doing to combat that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know like, you know, the certain formal decisions we make Like, you'll never hear someone tell you to silence your cell phones in the space. You'll never hear someone introduce the play or, um, thank the donors or the sponsors. Um, because the space is sacred and that stuff is economic and social and it breaks the sacredness of the space. And so that's one thing I want them to get, I want them Mm. to get and I want them to come in and feel a kind of echo of the room that was there, not waiting for them to be there. And that would be there whether they were there or not. And, And then when you get there, knowing that we're not going to break that, and we're not going to bring in all the outside kind of profane world into this. And the sense of, you know, that's the spiritual kind of thing. The sense of like, that this is important. Um, and that this is separate from the rest of it. I mean, Who doesn't know to silence their cell phones at of play? You know, they know and they can choose it or they can't. And if they choose not to, and it goes off. And that's a thing that happens. It's part of the show. Yeah, and that's part of Absolutely. the world. And then we, it's a meditation upon how attached we are to our cell phones. Exactly. And we just let that be in the room. And, you know, mm-hmm. we do that We with pre-show. There's this sense of, like, you're coming in late. What's so funny, we'll have people come in, and the pre is happening. And we'll see them, and they they come in, like, slouched and, like, tiptoeing. And they're 10 minutes early. And I just have up there, like, that's amazing. <laughs> because you are late you're always late. like you're late like the world you're late you mm-hmm. are like mm-hmm. or you're on time or and you can come in and confidently and know that you're you're arrived and you're at something important or you can tiptoe in apologetically but we're going to see it and that's part of the experience yes. and um intermission we do the same thing you know it's there's something happening and if you go to the restroom to use the if you need to use the restroom I want the audience, you know, as you're peeing, (laughs) you realize I'm missing something because you are missing something and that's life. And so everything is thought about the end of the show. If you're going to clap or not clap, you know, we aren't going to ask for clapping very often, Um, but you can, we're not telling you, you can't, but you're going to maybe interrupt something.
0: Do y'all do curtain calls?
1: We've done, I think one or two.
0: I just realized that y'all don't do those.
1: No, okay. and I think it goes back to this: what if you, what do you, what do you get? So mm. curtain call for me is a bunch of actors. Sometimes I will I will preface this to say that I've had shows where I ask actors if they want to do a curtain call.
0: Okay. And often the
1: actors resoundingly say no.
0: Okay. And so they don't like them. Well, they come to work with
1: us, and they don't want to ask for applause.
0: Got it. Yeah.
1: And and I think like a lot of it is like these actors like a lot of the curtain call is this like congratulate me thing and it's like we don't want to ask. We're not here again, we're not here for you. Mm. We are not doing this for you. We're not asking for your congratulations or your applause. We don't care if you need us to like step out of the role so that you can see us go from the actor to the or from the character of the actor so that you have a comfortable ride home, you know, with the illusion being broken. It's not important to us. Like we're here as actors and as artists to bear witness to a thing that is important, to serve a theatrical function in a democratic society that's losing it, and we don't need you to applaud us for it and we're not gonna ask. Now and that now if an audience member stands up because it swells in them, that, that guy got a Give this a point. like. We're gonna cry. And we're gonna be so happy, and it's it will interrupt whatever meditation is there. But like, it'll come from a true interruption of mm. joy, mm-hmm. and that's like what we're asking for and not asking. Right. And um, you know, in Ubu, we had a really controversial curtain call mm-hmm. that was very thought out on my end, and people didn't like it, but we did. Um, a song and dance number that served as the curtain call with after this kind of mass violent mass shooting. Yes,
0: I remember that I was very grateful for the the song and dance. Yeah we did this like mass shooting it was really well did a
1: song and dance. Yeah. And then but what we did though is after the song and dance and the curtain call and we had the standing ovation, we dropped the lights back down and it was a just dead bodies all over the stage from mm-hmm. a mass. And people felt like we pulled the wool over their eyes in that moment and felt like it was disrespectful mm. from me. Mm. And like I had them cheer over dead bodies. Mm. And I just say to them, I did not force you to stand and cheer. I just mm. turned your a gaze to something happy in a musical number. Mm. And man, you forgot really easily. And that is confrontational. Um, But I was saying something in that. I was saying like, man, we forget super easily. We just turn on Netflix and we forget what the thing we just read in the news. And it was a theatrical way of saying that. And yeah, it might be difficult. It might've been, um, but it was with a good intention to bring awareness to how easily we forget mass violence and trauma.
0: Yeah. Well, especially considering what we deal with in this country with shootings every single day, practically. Of course, when you did Ubuwa, it was during Trump's presidency, right? Mm -hmm. So you were making a lot of statements, um, politically about that show. Um, but I think for me, I go to the theater to be deeply impacted. And there is never a Vernal and Sear show that I see that does not deeply impact me. So I think for me, experimental theater isn't necessarily um, something anyone should ever expect. Isn't going to be um, unsettling. Yeah. It is by design unsettling and um, we unsettle ourselves so that we can change. Right. And, um, and I really hope that seeing shows like that can change people and seeing like what that moment is where you realize you totally forgot for a second that you just saw a mass shooting and how crazy our brains are and how they work, yeah. you know? And that, that is, it's, every time I go to the theater is always an observation of myself, learning more about myself so that I may grow and evolve further. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if I go to the theater and I don't have that experience, then I feel like I don't know why I went, which goes back to what we were talking about, you know, mm-hmm. is doing safe theater is really, really, in my opinion, very boring. Yeah. Right. And just make a Netflix show if you want to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, because realism can be found all over the place, but do we need it in the theater? Yeah. Right. It's a good question to ask. Yeah. And
1: I mean, on, on that too, like, you know, there's something you said that made me think about, like, I'm an audience member too. Mm-hmm. And when I'm making work, I'm a not like, I make it's me too. And I need, I also am at fault for reading the news headline and then going and getting a burger. Right. And a beer and having a good time. Like, I'm mm-hmm. at fault. And so when I'm making work and I have the curtain call and then the re- realization, I'm doing that to me too, because I'd be the idiot standing with the curtain call mm-hmm. clapping because I'm conforming to the theatrical convention and then i would want someone to slap me in the face and make me aware of what i do mm-hmm. and and i just think that's a you know i'm always i'm also always an audience member and that and you're not alone like yeah
0: you know, yeah um, i yeah. think that's powerful and also um and i do feel that in your work i think that you are thinking about the audience experience and it's like well what would i want But what I want to see as an audience member, um, which I think is pretty dramaturgical of you, actually. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. It has been a joy to chat with Sawyer. This is part one. Part two will be released very soon. And you will get to hear the second half of our conversation. Thank you so much and have a great day.
1: Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Tablework, How New Plays Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.WorkingTitlePlaywrights.com.